1: Hi, once again, Chris Malone from the 98.5 KTK Morning Show. Hope you had a great uh, uh, Labor Day weekend, the unofficial ending of summer. Maybe the unofficial ending of summer in about two months here in uh, Florida. But uh, here's what you may have missed this morning on the show, which, of course, is Tuesday, September 6th, 2022. It's a subject we don't like to talk about, but we let's be, let's be real honest. We're all going to die sometime. And even though it's something we don't like to to dwell on or even talk about, it is something to be aware of because, much like with anything in this life, it costs money to die. <laughs> in short, uh, they were saying that the average price of a funeral <clears throat> is roughly $7,800. And believe it or not, the price of cremations have gone up constantly over the last five years. That's They're about $900 less than a traditional uh, funeral. So it can tell you how the popularity of um, being cremated is growing in, popula- in, in popularity. But these are maybe things to consider if you uh, ha- have not had this conversation yet, or you have not planned for what's going to happen eventually. And that's going to be the cost of a f- Everything from the casket to the embalming process to the memorial services are going to be costing you cash upwards of 7800 bucks. Just the uh, funeral, or rather the casket itself, could be around $2,500. They have urns that upwards of $2,000. Um, here is uh, like tombstones could be upwards of $3,300. So those are all things that you really should consider, especially when you want your loved ones to do with your body once you have left this world. Um there's a couple things you can do for them. Obviously, one of them is going to be life insurance. Once you do pass, and once the executor or benefactor of your of your life insurance present your death certificate to the insurance company, they get the cash. And then, of course, you can use that money to pay for the funeral expenses if that is your wishes. Another one is a payable on death account, which is kind of like a savings account, which kind of works the same way. The executor or the benefactor. Um, would go to your bank with a death certificate, and then, therefore you would get access to this particular account. I know that when my mother died unexpectedly, it was kind of difficult to get into her banking information because we were not on the, um, we weren't on the account, and we and then until we had that, even with the death certificate, it was still kind of difficult. We actually had to go through the court system. That's probate, and that's what takes so long. And mainly, it boils down to because a lot of people don't have a will or don't have a plan in in, in place. See this circle that we're trying to break here? All right. Uh, of course, uh, if you have uh, served our military services, uh, there are some veteran benefits involved, but basically that's going to only pay for the burial plot and for the uh, the head marker, and that's going to be it. So everything else you're going to have to come up with. And then um, I thought this was kind of good thing then to have. Hopefully it will never happen to you or anybody you know, but in the event somebody, uh, your loved one, is killed um, by accident, uh, either like say, like a car crash or uh, a stray bullet or something like that. And, you know, they were kind of young, and you weren't really expecting them to to you expected them to live a lot longer than they have. There's actually something called the Florida Victim Comprehensive Fund. And it actually can offer some assistance if you find yourself in a situation of having to pay for the funeral expenses of someone unexpectedly due to a homicide or an accident. Uh, you can get that through the state of Florida. So that's uh, some good things. We talked about the redress number, and if you've been – anybody who's ever been traveling um, and having some difficulty in traveling, you may need to get what's called a redress number, and it's going to explain a lot of things, but, you know, when you go to buy, like, say, an airline ticket – um, you enter in all your past, your information, your birth date, uh, you know, your, your age and all that. And then they're going to ask you, do you have a known traveler number? This is where if you're a part of the TSA pre-check program or the custom global entry program, you can enter your number. So therefore, you don't have to take off your belt. You're going to take off your shoes and you get a little bit faster line through the TSA checkpoint when you go to an airport. Uh, there's another one that is called the redress number. And this one would be good. If, for instance, you share a name with somebody who's on a no-fly list, or perhaps you had your identity stolen and someone did some really bad things and you're trying to get that cleared up, the redress number is basically a program that uh, the, the, the Department of Homeland Security has that in essence will say, oh, you mean Chris Malone? Oh, there's another person named Chris Malone who's done some bad things, but this Chris Malone that has this number, he's he's fine, don't worry about that. And that will make things a little bit easier when you try to book travel or if you're trying to get back into the country or go into another country like Canada or Mexico. Um, And how you would kind of know if you need this redress number is a couple of things. If you're unable to uh, print a boarding pass when you're at the airport or you're denied boarding, or uh, some sort of problems of secondary screening each and every time you go through customs. Those are probably signs that you may want to look further into the redress program so you can get that number and perhaps travel a little bit easier.
0: Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced.
1: Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game.
0: You have 47 new voicemails.
1: Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, we're on now to the evolution of the credit score. I find the the, the FICO score system fascinating to me because... There's, you would tend to think there's one FICO score, but there's actually over a dozen scores. And there's really no rhyme for reason as to why one particular lending institution would use FICO score number 15 versus another one that will use FICO score number eight. It really, it's just kind of, they just kind of change things up. For instance, the last change they had with the FICO score was back uh, when they started allowing uh, payments of rent to be included in your credit report. So that's, what goes on with that, but I thought was very interesting is that the evolution of the FICO score may be the reason that it's in its downfall. And you have to consider that the FICO score was created back in the 1950s. It was about seven decades ago. And prior to that, you'd have uh, retail locations that would keep tabs on people that wanted credit. Um, and they would say, down on your income and, and your payment history if you would actually pay back the, the money that you, you were owed, and which makes total sense. But what doesn't make sense is there was a lot of personal information included in those reports that were shared between retail locations, such as the color of your skin, the gender of, your, of the borrower, even your disability. So, for instance, if you were an African-American or if you were a divorced uh, uh, parent or if you lost a limb in a war that you fought for this country, those were all legit reasons for people to deny you credit. That makes no sense to me at all. So back in the, uh, the 1970s is when uh, the law was changed to say, "Hey, you cannot use uh, uh, gender, race, sexuality, or even disability when you're talking about extending credit. Unfortunately for women, it took four extra years for that to move on for women to finally open a bank account or open a line of credit without permission from her husband. Isn't that crazy? In the 70s, that's how long it took. But here we are into uh, where we are today. FICO, like I said, started in the 1950s, and it became kind of this... Uh, preferred algorithm. They must have had a really good marketing team because in 1989, that's when the three credit bureaus decided, hey, we're going to use your FICO score to let lenders know how you are in borrowing money. The problem today is is that your FICO scores used more than just for lending money. It's used for um, if you are going to get extended uh, a, a job offer. It's used if you're going to get good credit uh, or good uh, uh, insurance rates on your car. It's just, it can be used uh, for just about everything besides you getting credit or money uh, on on a loan. So, um, what's kind of happening is that the pendulum's swinging the other way. A lot of lenders, there's 90% of them, according to this report, that uh, 90% of the top lenders use your FICO score exclusively for lending decisions. And again, that's an algorithm. It's not really scientifically factual, but it's pretty good. But uh, there's about 10% of lending institutions that look beyond that score. And that's where getting to know your banker really can come into play. Because uh, for one example here, let's say if there is one bank I do know for sure that a, a, an associate of mine missed one car payment when he was in his early 20s. Let's be honest. I think if we were to point that out, 9 out of 10 people missed at least one payment in their early 20s because she didn't know how to manage money. Well, to this day, this particular institution will not lend this person money because of this missed payment a lifetime ago. Makes absolutely no sense. So, what a lot of new uh, lenders are using is to actually get to know people and say, "All right, you may have missed a payment, but how long ago was it, and what was it for, and was it a big payment?" Um, you know, basically lo- allowing you to explain because it is true. It's you, you can't just use a blanket number to say this person's going to have good credit or not. In fact, that would explain why if you have an identical credit score with somebody else, you get credit and they don't. It could be because they're a woman. They're divorced. They're a person of color. They are somebody who has a disability. These are all things that were kind of rolled in <laughs> to these reporting agencies um, that never have been, really been addressed. And that's why FICO kind of updates its system to say, wait a minute, these are the kind of things we don't really want to, uh, you know, we don't use. But that doesn't stop some lenders from using the old, the old systems. So why I bring all this up It's always, always, always a good idea to look at your credit, especially once a year just to make sure that everything is being reported correctly because the process of getting that corrected can be cumbersome and take a lot of time. And generally when you're waiting on a mortgage approval or on a car approval, you don't have that time to waste to get that loan. I thought I'm in the process of of learning a second language. And when I say I'm in the process, I'm into like the sixth year of trying to learn Spanish. And I know maybe a handful of words. I do know that uh, each language has its own quirks. One of them in Spanish is the the, uh, use of the word el and la, like el jefe and la niña. And from people who tell me who speak Spanish, they said, I wish there was a rule that we could tell you. Uh, but there is no rule. Sometimes they say have L, which is a masculine pronoun, and you have uh, La, which is a feminine pronoun based on the word. Anyways, English has words also that don't really make sense in translate. In fact, I'm dealing with my boy right now. They're called the core words, which helps in reading. And these are words that, in essence, break all the rules of what you're taught with English. It's just how the word sounds, like the word the. There's a bunch of rules that the word the breaks. But we just say the, and we know what it means. Um, But there are some words in the English language that don't translate to other languages, which I thought probably one of the ones that stood up for me is the word nice, which is used quite often in the English language. But it can actually be kind of uh, because it, it means so many things. It's a nice day. You are being nice to me. You have a nice voice. It means so many different things. It's very hard to translate into other languages. I thought what was interesting is the word awkward, uh, which is to, uh, it's it's a blend of being embarrassed and being discomfort and uncertainty. It does not translate in Italian. The word shallow does not translate into French or Italian. In fact, the word off does not translate into French at all. And I'm sure there's a bunch of French words that don't translate, but um, it's one of those weird things of the wonderful world of the English language. And then finally, you talked about fizzy water. In particular, um, bottles that have carbonation and sparkling water would be one word to describe it as well. And they're growing in popularity as people kind of uh, um, change from drinking carbonated waters and carbonated beverages to sparkling waters because it doesn't have as much stuff we think that's in it, right? Well, that could be kind of true and kind of not true. But one of the biggest complaints about you drinking anything carbonated is that it makes you feel bloated and it, dare I say, gives you gas, which can happen. But nine times out of 10, it's not the carbonation that's causing the bloatiness and gas. Believe it or not, it's the artificial sweeteners that may be in the bubbly water or beverage that you're drinking, mainly because your body doesn't know how to break this stuff down. It kind of just sits there for a while, and it's and it's, it's kind of like your kid brother that just won't leave you alone. It irritates your body, causing the bloatiness, causing you to retain gas and eventually let it go. So if you are making the transition to, uh, to sparkling water or uh, bubbly water or something like that, make sure that if it's flavored, you're not going to have anything artificial because you're going to run into the same problem as you would if you were to drink, let's say, a diet soda, which has artificial sweeteners in it. So there, that's the show for today, Tuesday, September 6th, 2022. Of course, I'm Chris Malone. I always welcome your feedback, comments, suggestions. And You can email me at cmalone at odyssey.com. That's the letter C-M-A-L-O-N-E at odyssey.com. That's spelled A-U-D-A-C-Y. <laughs>